Well, hi everyone. Welcome back. This is the we're going to be talking in the telemedicine segment today um, to give you a little bit more context. Telemedicine is vast. We looked at over 500 startups within the space globally, um, and I'm really excited to be talking with Cole, who's the CEO of DocDoc. And what we picked Cole as one of the top telemedicine companies globally. Primarily because of the things that they're doing. It's very unique perspective in telemedicine and they take a much different approach than what you traditionally see. And that's why I'm super excited to be talking to you, Cole, today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Hey, thank you. I mean, uh, I, you know, first, just a lot of gratitude. We really appreciate you guys uh, picking us. You know, starting a company is a very lonely journey when you're building an entire category. And I know you're putting us in the, the telemedicine category, but I, I really think we're a patient intelligence company. Telemedicine's just a vehicle to deliver that intelligence. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful for being recognized and thankful to the team for working so hard to make this happen. Awesome. Well, Cole, to start, uh, you provided us with a great visual, a video that's we're gonna use to just kind of give the audience a baseline of the product and what actually DocDoc does. So everyone's at the same baseline and then we'll, we'll jump into some more questions and, and talk about the product features. Yeah? Okay. Sure. Meet Grace and Cole. They were a happily married couple and life was great. When they gave birth to Rand, life got even better. One day, they took her for a regular medical checkup. After a series of tests, they found a problem. Rand needed an urgent liver transplant. Their happy world turned upside down. To make matters worse, the doctors wouldn't give them the necessary information about the procedure or their qualifications to perform it. They felt lost, frustrated, confused and angry. Luckily, Grace had a great network as she was the managing director of Medtronic in Asia, the world's largest medical device company. They found an amazing team of doctors who performed the world's first flipped liver pediatric live liver transplant. It was a huge success. They were very lucky, but they felt that finding the right care shouldn't depend on luck. They spoke to their friends and family and realized that each of them has faced a similar problem. This is how DocDoc, Doc, the world's first patient intelligence company was born. DocDoc Doc began with a simple and powerful vision to empower patients to make data-driven healthcare decisions that are safe, transparent, and fair. But to realize this vision, they had to first solve a mountain of interrelated problems. Grace and Cole couldn't do it alone. So, they brought in reinforcements, a world-class team of domain experts and experienced entrepreneurs, and great support from investors and advisors. The team realized that changing the status quo overnight is unrealistic. They took a long-term approach and created a system-wide solution to scale the mountain. Hope, DocDoc's AI-powered doctor discovery engine was born to bridge the information asymmetry in healthcare and enable patients to make data-driven healthcare decisions. With DocDoc, patients receive personalized doctor recommendations, a medically trained friend in the industry, and a hassle-free payment experience. What's more, DocDoc's service is free for the patient. Patients see the right doctor the first time around, which means higher chances of a correct diagnosis and treatment, and lower chances of medical complications and readmissions. HOPE ensures doctors receive patients that are well-suited to their expertise for free. 
Pharma companies can receive accurate and timely market research and increase patient treatment adherence to maximize the impact of their drugs. DocDoc enables insurance companies and employers to access Asia's largest and most comprehensive healthcare network and offer a differentiated healthcare solution to their policyholders and employees. By providing quality healthcare at an affordable price, DocDoc Doc delivers significant cost savings to payers while delighting their end users. DocDoc Doc has established partnerships with many of Asia's largest insurance companies, brokers and employers to provide solutions for their policyholders and employees. By delivering value to each stakeholder, DocDoc Doc has grown to become Asia's largest and most comprehensive doctor network. And the world began to take note of their mission. By improving outcomes, decreasing costs, and delighting patients, DocDoc Doc is raising the bar in healthcare. Join us as we transform the face of healthcare for billions of patients across the world. DocDoc, Doc, transforming healthcare, empowering lives. Great, so uh, one of the things that I want to start off, Cole, was I'm, I'm just curious, what is the backstory behind DocTalk? Why did you start this company? Well, it wasn't because I wanted to be an overnight billionaire. <laughs> of this, I can assure you. So, it, you know, as the video indicated, um, when our daughter was 100 days old, I had just flown in from London and uh, I'd taken the red eye. My wife says, hey, Cole, would you take Rand to the hospital to uh, do the, uh, or to the pediatrician and do a 100-day checkup? And it was already scheduled. And I walk her, I take my daughter in. You know, she's only about this big at the time. And, you know, I take her in and I'm holding her and, and the pediatrician looks at her and he just, just turns pale as pale white like a ghost. And he says, Cole, she's jaundice. Um, she shouldn't be jaundice. He goes, uh, I need you to right now go to the hospital and get an ultrasound done. I'll call and get it ready right now. So I go over, I, I'm still not totally processing. I come on the phone at the time and I'm not processing the magnitude of what's about to happen. I get to the hospital and I do this ultrasound with, the with the do my daughter and I remember holding her and she was trying to play in the KY jelly as they were kind of running this wand across her stomach and the nurse starts crying while she's doing the ultrasound because she can see on the screen. What I would later find out is, is that my daughter's liver was failing. And um, the next thing you know, I'm in this tiny room, I'm surrounded by guys in trench coats and I'm being told that my daughter's liver has failed and or it's rapidly failing and that um, we need to do a massive operation tomorrow morning to buy us enough time for her to grow enough to do a liver transplant. And I'm reading about this and it's just disaster. The whole thing is, is statistically not where you wanna be at all. Forget about all the emotional issues and. And so my wife at the time was running Medtronic. Uh, I was an, uh, an executive investment professional at Tomasic Holdings, the local sovereign wealth fund in Singapore. And, uh, and so we were connected, we were well healed. We, we, we thought we were in, you know, kind of above a lot of the fray of some of these crazy issues. But there we were, and I found myself asking the doctor, how many times have you done this procedure? His answer was, I'm the head of the department, I'm good at my job. I'm saying, well, how much is this going to cost? Just roughly. They ask me the type of insurance I have and they say, don't worry about it. It's going to be very expensive. 
they ask, I ask, I say, well, you know, do we have to do this tonight? You know, what's the long-term issues here? And I'm told, Hey, you don't have a choice. We have to do this now. And, um, uh, uh, the long-term consequences, don't even worry about it because you just don't have a choice. We have to do this. And I remember sitting there thinking, I never felt so vulnerable and alone in my entire life. And um, Grace, being the smarter of the two of us, she called the, uh, um, uh, a good friend of hers that was a pediatric uh, live liver surgeon or a pediatric uh, cardiac, a cardiovascular surgeon in Singapore. And he came over and he helped us. And he walked in the room and he put his arms around us and he walked us out. And I remember when he walked in, all the other surgeons were on edge. And he put his arms around us, walked us out of the room. And he said, the moment the door shut, Cole, don't let anybody in that room do this procedure. They're not qualified. I mean, they're qualified, but they don't see something like this very often. This is really unique. We need to do a global search and you have time. Time measured in weeks, not hours to get this done. And so long story short, we found the, the highest volume team in the world in Japan, the inventor, and it was, they were also the inventor of the live liver transplant. Uh, within 24 hours, we were on a plane to see them and we did the, the first procedure there. We then ended up doing, they ended up being the transplant team and I was the donor. But at the end of this, when I got the bill back, this team that was from an expertise point of view, head and shoulders above the other groups that we had talked to, they were 60% cheaper. Because there's a little known fact in healthcare, what you pay and what you get aren't even correlated because nobody has access to the data to understand anything that would make it a, a, an informed decision. And so it was at that point that I, I quit my job at Tomasic and, and Grace left Medtronic and we decided that we were gonna solve this problem uh, for the world. And that's why DocDoc's unique. I mean, the whole thing is unique. It started from a very personal issue. See, it isn't just Cole and it isn't just Grace and it isn't just Rand that are gonna have this problem. It's every single one of us. At some point in our lives, for, uh, for myself or somebody I love, I'm gonna have to make that decision. And the world needs that data. Telemedicine is just the vehicle to deliver it. Wow. That's I mean, I'm, I'm shocked. I don't I, 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 I'm, well, I'm glad at least the, uh, your, your daughter's healthy and everything. She's done really well. She's eight years old now. And this journey has been nightmarish to have to build. I think defining a category is tough. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, as an investor, I knew we were, we were, we were, it was a big bite to define the category of patient intelligence, mm -hmm. to figure out how to get access to the data, how to store the data, how to retrieve the data, how to use the algorithms to actually measure, to even know what data to collect. Because it all has to be, there's a lot, healthcare has got barriers on top of barriers on top of right. barriers. And we can talk yeah. about that in more, I, you know. Well, I'll make the segue, um, but uh, an incredible backstory. And, and to be honest with you, I think some of the most incredible healthcare companies that are built, a lot of the founders that uh, we talk to that are part of the top founders within that are featured in this event, at least. Uh, a lot of them have a very personal story behind the, the reason why they're creating these companies. It's, 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 for it's a, because it's so hard. Goal. Healthcare yeah. is so hard. What part of it's easy? <laughs> dealing with doctors? No. Dealing with governments? No. Dealing with insurance? Hospitals? What, the whole thing is antiquated and regulated and difficult. You better have a why, and that why had better be big or you're going to quit. 
right. or you're going to develop something that's me too and easy. And right. the, the castles, the payer castle, they eat you up. Right. Well, let's, let's jump into the uniqueness of Doc yeah. Doc. And the reason why I wanted to highlight you is, you know, one of the top companies in the telemedicine category as a whole, and it's, it's a big and a vast space and there's, uh, you know, segments of that. And uh, I started to almost position you as a, uh, within the specialty services. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about that. Now at a surface level, you're taking a lot of different data points on a variety of different doctors and you're trying to match patients with the right doctors at a, at a, at a very high level. And I'm curious, how do we break this down? First, yeah. how are you collecting data on providers? And right. we'll start there. And then the follow-up to that is how do, what do patients input to find the right doctor? What is the data points that they have to use in order to match, sure that they're actually gonna get the right match? Yeah, okay, so, so at a high level, and it took us years to figure all this out. What separates the, uh, um, the men from the boys or, uh, or the, uh, um, uh, uh, what separates the men from the boys in terms of trying to measure uh, healthcare quality, uh, you have to do it at a condition and procedure level. There's no, you can't, there's a whole field in healthcare about quality and it begins at a condition procedure level. So it's orthopedic surgeons measured on anterior cruciate ligament repair in the knee. It's not good orthopedic surgeon, bad orthopedic surgeon. So there is no Yelp for doctors. There is, you can't, it just doesn't work that way because the amount of information that you have to collect and then the, the way in which you have to store it in a knowledge model is just, it's a vastly larger and more complex problem. This is why, see, the internet does three things really well. Uh, it does uh, curation or discovery. Uh, what I would say, curation, discovery, transaction. The reason that this hasn't happened in healthcare is because the, the, the underlining, to collect the information about the doctor is really hard. And then to just A, to get access to any of the data, and then B, to get access to, to know the types of data that you need to um, actually measure quality is also a challenge. So that's a lot of words. Let me be very clear on what we've done. So what we did was we started out by, we took, it took 23 doctors three and a half years just to build our knowledge model. And we had to go in by hand and take, for example, orthopedic surgery as a specialty class based on international classification of disease. Then we had to go in and look at 150,000 procedures that we believed orthopedic surgery, or that we, that, were normal Western medicine codified procedures. And we had to build them by hand, connect. So which of that 150,000 actually an orthopedic surgeon should be doing? Because they can't do all of them. So we had to actually create the knowledge of connecting condition, procedure, and then we had to do the exact same thing um, for specialty. So now you have a knowledge model. So you're able to walk into a doctor's office and say, okay, doctor, you're an orthopedic surgeon. That's your specialty. Now, here are the 50 procedures that we at DocDoc Doc believe orthopedic surgeons should be doing. And that's our medical team of doctors that had to come up with that determination. Now, doctor, can you give us from your records the volume for each of those? Uh, how, how often have you done those in the past 12 months, each one of those procedures? What about the past 24 months? 
Now here's a list of conditions that we believe are relevant to each one of those procedures. How often are you treating those conditions? Now you're just starting to build the knowledge architecture that allows you to begin to look at volume as one of a variety of things. Then we take their entire curriculum vitae, their entire CV, which can be 100 pages long. And we've also modeled that so that all of that goes into a machine readable format. So all their residencies, all their subspecialty training, all of their follow-on education, all of their follow-on awards, all of their memberships. And we're able to put all of that into a machine readable format based on global code sets. And so now we can start saying, okay, does this doctor's education pattern align with the patient's unique need? Does this, pay, does this pay, uh, doctor's procedure pattern align with what the patient likely needs? Does this doctor's condition pattern align with what the patient uniquely needs? And that's just the outcome score, which for us is a predictive analytics measure of the doctor's expected efficacy of treating a patient like that person. Now, the hard part here was not, the modeling is tough, the collecting of the data is hard, but there's a ton of good research on quality once you have the data and it's modeled well. So at that point, it becomes easy. At that point, you can, there's a ton of literature that you can lean on to determine, well, is volume of a procedure and educational background correlated with lower complications or readmissions? Yes. And there's a thousand studies to substantiate it. Is the volume of one procedure, not just one procedure, but the associated procedures around it, so the clustering of those procedures, is that affiliated with a reduction in complication and readmissions? Absolutely. So then, then it becomes easy to have, it, you become, the algorithm layer, like, like our lead clinical informaticist likes to say, that's the fun, easy layer. It's the uh, things that undergird it that make it really hard. Mm. And a lot of this process then for you has been very manual to get providers on your platform to submit their own information and their background. Is that? It's the only way. Hmm. There's high leverage to it. Yeah. Uh, and once you've, you have to go out and sign them up door to door. You have to collect the data from the clinic. I've tried to collect the data from a half a dozen of the largest global insurers in the world. In Asia, it doesn't exist. I've went to the largest TPAs in the world, uh, in, not in the world, in Asia. They don't have the data either. Um, I've also went to the hospitals. They don't have it. And these, by the way, all these groups have agreed to give us the data. They simply don't have it. What they have is data debt because they didn't actually ever input the data in a machine readable way so that they could get access to it. Mm. So the data, you have to start by de developing a direct node to node relationship with each of the physicians at a mm. clinic level. You use the data then to create the 360 degree view of the doctor's uh, practice pattern and educational background. Then you can add the claims process on top of it, which is what we haven't even talked about, to create a learning, uh, a learning uh, um, organization. And, and the benefit, can you explain the benefit to a provider to give you their information and be yeah. participate in your ecosystem? Sure. So uh, first I, I would say, and this is the nice thing about having a lot of grit and being in the market a long time. So last year we signed up over a thousand specialists in the region and it, it wasn't even a major focus for us, but just kind of keeping that going. And 96.4% of the doctors we approached signed up. So the proof is in the pudding, they do. 
right? It's not a theoretical thing anymore. And we have thousands of doctors that have done this and, and, and that happens. But the, the, the crux of it is, is because I find that doctors get kind of a bad rep because as a whole, these people go into medicine. Yeah, they want to make a good living. Yes, they like the prestige of it, but they also want to help people. And they know what they do better. The orthopedic surgeon knows what they would treat their best friend for and what they wouldn't. Even if they're qualified to do a hip replacement, if that's not really what they do a lot of, the good ones will refer those out to another surgeon. So, so they know what they want to see more of, and they know what they're best at. And when, they, when you sit down and they start seeing the questions you're asking, they automatically go, wow, you're going to know that too. And you're not charging me. There's no conflict of interest here. I'm not having to pay you a referral fee. I'm not getting, having to give some kind of kickback. I'm just going to tell you what I'm good at. You're going to keep that secure. And you're going to bring me patients that are more of what I want to do to help people. So it's really a great win-win. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a definitely an interesting approach that you took with, I mean, it seems as though a lot of cases, you almost have to go that manual route of collecting information. There's no other way. It's, There's it's no other way. Brute, brute force. Well, on the patient side, what does that interface look like? How do they uh, yeah. interact with Doc Doc, or do they at all? Yeah, no, no, of course they do. So we've done uh, a lot. It took us years to figure out how to consistently delight policy or policyholders or patients, if you will. Um, and what we learned is is that. The triage component, there, there will, over time, we will see AI get better at, at, at um, dealing with patients and making patients, putting patients at ease and helping patients interface with the system, right? You're still going to always need doctor discovery, which is our core offering. But on that front piece, we did a lot of research into should we go down the Babylon health route? or the ADA health route? Should we go and try to put in an automatic triage? And our conclusion was that there's nothing that beats talking to a physician on the phone. So when you have a problem, you want to talk to a doctor, you want a live interactive voice, and you want that person to basically help guide you as a friend in the industry. So that's the way we begin our journey. You want, to, you want help, you click on the button with one of our partners, and you immediately talk to one of the doctors that's sitting in our contact center. And that doctor's whole job is just to help you um, uh, navigate the healthcare system. You may need to see a specialist. That's when we engage uh, HOPE, the Heuristic for Outcome, Price, and Experience, to create customized doctor discovery reports for you. You may need just a traditional telemedicine primary care consultation. And depending on the market, the physician, if the physician's in the market, where the call originates, they'll do that telemedicine consultation for you right there. Or they'll say, hey, hold on, and they'll transfer you to a, a doctor in that market that can do that telemedicine consultation for you. Mm. Or they'll make the determination right there, hey, you need a physical exam. What you're describing, let me go ahead and book a GP uh, consultation for you, a general practitioner consultation for you there. So we've been able to use the best of data and workflow and a huge specialist network uh, and you know, the provider analytics associated with it to deliver value to the policyholder or to the employee every time they call in. That's a good model. 
the human touch is okay. You know, it, we, can, we can make the economics work there because there's so much money to be saved in the arbitrage. And over time, we'll automate that more, but I'm not sure the juice is worth the squeeze because what I see right now in these automatic triage, most of the experiences are pretty poor. Okay. And in this approach, does that scale well? Yeah, scales very well. That's what I'm saying. I looked at the economics. I've, I come from a private equity background and I analyzed this very robustly. And the last thing I wanted to do was build anything manually. But see, see here's that thing about healthcare and, and, and telemedicine is a proxy for it. In healthcare, you really need big, robust barriers to entry or you'll never make economic profit. You'll spend forever getting in with a payer, forever getting in with an employer or some form of distribution only to be squeezed into oblivion. So, so you have to have a big, robust barrier to entry. So I realized five years ago, I mean, three and a half years just to build the knowledge architecture, you know, most VCs don't like that kind of time frame. Even though they say they're patient investors, they don't like that kind of time frame. And then when you say you have to go out and manually collect the data, manually also scares people. But once you've done it, it's real hard for anybody else to replicate it. And once you realize, see, in healthcare globally, I've got robust studies and pilots now to, to substantiate this in Singapore, Malaysia, and Hong Kong, and South Africa. And what I can tell you is that the information is so opaque that what you pay in terms of cost and what you get in terms of outcome or quality aren't even correlated. It's like walking into an auto dealership and handing the, the car salesman your credit card and you don't know if you're gonna get a Rolls Royce and paying for a Ford Pinto or if you're gonna get a Ford Pinto and paid for a Rolls Royce. You have no idea. And that's not because there's something totally unique in healthcare. It's because the data has not flown through the system. So in DocDoc, Doc, we're reducing medical payout. We're bending the cost curve in our pilots 20, 30 plus percent. Hmm. Right? Big, big changes here. Because yeah. we're in essence the first algorithmic traders in a stock market where everybody else is using the ticker tape. And that makes a big difference. There's real value to doing it that way. So we believe in building businesses the old fashioned way. Hmm. Barriers to entry, robust unit economics, big value propositions, hmm. right? And for, for what we've spent for versus what we've built, I am really proud of this team because hmm. it's hard to build these things. It takes time, not just money, time. Right. Well, and, and, and with that, to kind of follow up from that comment, I'm, I'm curious on, um, on the patient side, especially in, in situations where you might feel as though you have an issue in the immediate term or you have a, you know, a, a chronic issue that's a, more of a long-term fix that you're looking for. And you have the variety of options, whether it's a, a Google search or whether it's walk into the clinic nearby or open up. Uh, internet and try to talk with a variety of different platforms that'll just, you know, for a certain price, you can talk to someone online that might have a medical degree. And I'm, I'm just curious for you guys, what has been the patient triggers to lead them to doc doc and how do you, how do you get to your end patients and what, what encourages them to use doc doc over 
other resources. Yeah, that, that's been, so uh, we've played around with B2C and we've played around with enterprise. We think that the, um, we made this decision a couple of years ago. Uh, ultimately, ultimately it has to be the insurer, the insurers and the big brokers because they're the ones that are ultimately on the hook for the policy holder. It's in pretty much every major market, the people that have the means to pay for care are going to have insurance or going to have an employer that pays for it. So even if people have a lot of eyeballs in other, in other kind of B2C ways, they don't get a big share of the wallet. And, and that ultimately is where you're gonna make money in this space. You have to be able to solve the pain of the people that have the big wallets. And, and so we decided to partner with insurance and partner with the large employee insurance brokers. And we're really helping those brokers learn. So if you think about what we've built, uh, I mean, I'll go into that in a second, but uh, we're, our distribution mechanism is primarily going to be through insurers and employee and, and brokers. And we are moving into groups like telcos as well. Um, but that's, that's going to be more, it's, it's not longer term, but they're, they're, you're going to see over time the insurance market become much more crowded. So you're going to start seeing telcos move into insurance. You're going to start seeing banks are already, uh, they're already uh, separating from their traditional and bank assurance relationships and starting to write their own risk. So insurance is going to become a far more crowded space, particularly in Asia. You're gonna see large tech companies coming into it as well. Um, and you know, you've already seen Amazon start down that road. And so all of those new existing and new pairs are the ideal distribution channels for what we're built, what we've built. I see. So the, 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 the touch point is actually when an individual wants to, uh, connect with the doctor, they're going to try to work with their insurance and their insurance is going to provide your tool to connect them to the right, right services they need. That's right. Or an employee, or they're going to talk to HR or see, this is a shift in mindset that's happening. You're already seeing all your traditional telemedicine channels are, uh, it's all, take every traditional telemedicine channel. Now just add on the infrastructure necessary to make it vastly more impactful. Uh, primary care globally doesn't really make a lot of money. They see about 80% of the patients in terms of volume and they only are about 20% of the share of medical spend. The 20% of the people that really need specialty care, they're the ones that consume 80% of the dollars. And, and so you have to build an integrated ecosystem that delights everyone in the beginning, even if it's the high volume telemedicine, but then is very good at triaging with, and using a lot of data to optimize the journey for those that are gonna end up spending a lot of money. And the, 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 the end consumer, this is completely aligned. This is the beauty of this, is building out the ecosystem this way aligns the payer and the patient in the, for the first time. Because we're not trading off quality. We're giving doc-doc patients get more of both than what they would find on their own. And I can statistically show that. That's the beauty of data. Interesting. And, and, and um, I guess, and, and actually, I might actually have you highlight on this point. What is the, the benefit to payers working directly with you and using yeah. your platform? Okay, so yeah, it, I'm glad you asked that question. So um, 
for the first time in the history, when you go back and you dig into, insurance was basically started in Egypt. And it was started by, it was actually started by the workers that were uh, building these giant projects. And they ended up creating this thing called the jar system, where they had to start putting money in the jar. And it was like this collective risk pooling. And that was the, that's kind of the, the initial history of it. Since that point in time, insurance really hasn't innovated. I mean, it's remarkable to say that, but when you dig into the workflows of the average insurer, what you realize is they're not learning organizations. They're siloed. So the claims data that comes in doesn't have a direct feedback loop to make the system more efficient. Most of the really interesting claims data is, is stored in a PDF that can't even be retrieved. So with DocDoc Doc now, you have a mechanism that empowers, your age, empowers the insurance agent in their interactions with their policyholders. Hey, we have this great service. When you need to see care, click on the button. You're gonna immediately talk to a doctor. They're gonna help you. You can go anywhere you want. They're not trying to tell you where to go. They're trying to give the data that you need to make an informed decision. That's what the agent is saying to boost engagement with the insurer. Take it to the next step. Now, um, once that date, once that patient comes in and talks to Doc Doc, we now steer medical intent. We give them the data they need to make informed decisions, but we steer it. So they're now going to high quality average cost doctors for their unique needs, having a great experience all along. Now all that data comes in and claims. Now we're processing that claim. And all that data is being stored in a machine readable way. And that's feeding back into our steering algorithms. So for the first time in the history of insurance, we've created a closed data loop so that there's feedback loops so that every claim that's processed, the entire machine gets more efficient. And the insurers now have a very, uh, what's, they have a clear reason to deliver value to their policyholders. See, the insurers are, they're in a tight bind because they haven't built brands that delight policyholders. And that has to change. And they haven't built the backend data architecture that would allow them to actually become more efficient with every claim processed. If you compare that to the way Amazon runs, every time a transaction happens in Amazon, that entire machine gets incrementally better because it's all measured, it's all fed into, the next, into a business intelligence system. And they're identifying just on the smallest margin how they can make that logistics a little better, how they can get that price a little cheaper how they can make that experience, how they can learn about what my intentions were. That can only happen if all the data is stored in an integrated closed data loop. And we're the first company in the world to do that in healthcare. And, and it's, uh, it's definitely, uh, well, really difficult for healthcare companies to work with uh, multiple uh, well, really, in this case, uh, three of the, the biggest stakeholders in this whole process, the policyholders, the patients themselves, the insurance, and then also the providers, and then get them all aligned in the same room and on the same page. That's, that's really tough. Um, yeah. well, I'm, I'm curious because the, the feedback generally overall for the, the general telemedicine service category. And this is coming directly from physicians themselves, is that it, telemedicine naturally is very limited in what you can do over the phone 
over the video. You can only diagnose or support individuals uh, at very, very simple issues, cold, flu, runny nose, what have you. And, And it seems, I mean, you kind of already explained a lot about how you take that one step further and why there's one step further is a little bit more value, but can you highlight this point on how you are not just maybe looking past just surface level diagnosis? Yeah. So, so telemedicine, um, the reason there's so many telemedicine companies is because a lot of digital entrepreneurs got into the space and they just slammed into brick walls. And so then they said, well, what can we build? We can build a booking platform. We can build a, a telemedicine consultation, a telemedicine consultation, technically very easy to do. Right. So, uh, you know, what doc dog did was we got out our drill and our sledgehammer. And we said, no, we're just going to, we're just going to go right through that wall. If we have to go door to door, we'll go door to door because we weren't, we weren't committed to just, we were committed to changing the world. We weren't committed to doing the most efficient and easiest thing. This wasn't meant for us to be, I, I didn't do this just to get rich. Like I, I can't emphasize that to you enough because that formed the foundation of the culture of the company. And you see all the people here, they're definitely, they're like committed zealots because they recognize, see, once the genie gets out of the bottle, it never goes back. As these, once I just get three or four of these insurers and we're, we're already really close, once they actually see what a closed loop system can use, they'll never go back. It's like Uber. You never sit in the rain anymore and wait for taxis, right? You call Uber and you wait in the house. Then you go out when the car is there. It's a fundamentally better mousetrap. And so telemedicine by itself has a very standalone, has very limited utility and is basically a commodity. And that's why you see even the ones that get distribution and payer relationships have struggled to meet, uh, um, to get long-term profitability because they just, they don't have the economic power to drive anything but uh, marginal revenue equals marginal cost. And I mean, it's just traditional barrier to entry. Go back to Michael Porter's, you know, Porter's five forces. Telemedicine has none of them. So they have to now, the entrepreneurs now have to broaden out their offering. And they're going to broaden out in a couple of different ways. One way they're going to broaden out is they're going to get into like the Livongo deal that Teladoc just did. They're going to get into remote sensing uh, to basically move the hospital room to the uh, bedroom. So all of a sudden I can put a device on and that device can be, uh, uh, can tell me oxygenation, blood pressure, and a variety of other metrics. And I can tie that into the ability to have the doctor call immediately if there's a problem, right? That's an interesting, but that's really not, telemedicine is still the sliver. It's the other tech stack that you're attaching to it. So that's one place they're going to go. The other place they're going to go is they're going to try to get into the kind of uh, GP drug space. So I do the telemedicine. It's largely a commodity, but I can deliver a prescription drug to you. And that'll work. Uh, That's going to be pretty limited, but I think it'll move into patient adherence programs. So what we're not talking about here is, is how digital therapeutics ultimately kind of come on the top of all of this. So you, you do a telemedicine consultation, you then do a specialist discovery, and it turns out you've been diagnosed as a type one diabetic. Now, do you need to go into the office once a month to see a doctor? The second, third, fifth, 10th visit, if you have a little bit of remote monitoring capabilities, 
can all be done uh, with telemedicine in a very effective way. So that's where telemedicine becomes really interesting. But standalone, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, standalone telemedicine by itself is a commodity product that will struggle. And, and I'm, I'm curious now with the relationship that you build with payers and um, how you work, you know, the, the network that you're building with providers and, and your relationship with policyholders, what is that business model for you? Because for most of telemedicine services, it just seems fee for service. There's yeah, no referral fees. You don't make any commission off of uh, pharmaceuticals or most say you shouldn't. Um, it, it seems very, very simple structured. I'm, I'm just curious, what, given the complexity and well, also the simplicity of your platform, what, what is, it, is it? Is it different and how does it change? Yeah. No, no, so we've refused that. Um, I, it was a strategic decision we had to make as a company. Do we just go out there and just give everything away for free, even to people that could pay and, and think it would work and then hope to figure it out later? And we opted not to do that. We decided to stay lean, to burn, relatively speaking, a lot less capital and to walk away from partnerships where we didn't find that we had partners that really understood the value we could bring. And the way that they value it is they pay us. Like ultimately, that's how you know. You know, if a partner understands that, and, and the way they pay us is in two forms. They pay us on a per member, per month model for every life covered. And it doesn't have to be a huge PMPM, but it has to matter. And then they also pay us a percent of cost savings. How right, for the efficiency. The cost savings? Yeah, the measurement's tough. The measurement's tough, and I don't want to give away too much secret sauce, but you got to have, first, it, it, all, it, all, it all stems back to building the data loop mm. and having the underlying knowledge architecture we were talking about. Gotcha. So you have to be able, um, you know, we're right now in discussions with a couple of the largest kind of tech companies in the world about trying to figure out how to help insurers solve some of their historic data debt issues. Um, but yeah, the way we figured that out was we, we came up, we, we come up with a, you know, traditional risk sharing agreement right up front with the, the, the uh, insurer at a condition and procedure level of granularity. Hmm. Interesting. And it, I feel like, especially for in certain markets like the US, that's the biggest, you know, companies might have a different back end and structure, but those that uh, seem to survive are the ones that have a, an integrated relationship with payers. Um, yeah, you have to, they have the yeah. wallet. I don't mean the wallet. I, I, I don't just mean like they have money. I mean, they're controlling the flow. One of the saddest realizations that I came to, because after I was sitting there in the, in the ICU after the transplant, I still couldn't figure out because I always ask myself, how is it possible that the consumer experience could be as bad as the one that I just experienced? Like what allowed that evolution to happen? It's easy just to get cynical and say, oh, they're just all screwed up. But there's always reasons that drive all of these things. And my conclusion is, is that in healthcare, the consumer, the patient largely doesn't matter, unfortunately, because of third party payment intermediation. Hospitals respond to who writes the checks. And that's governments, it's large employers, and it's, or, or the brokers that represent them, and it's insurance. So that's why the patient experience has been set up this way. The auto industry, in contrast, Ford Motor Company cares a lot about getting intermediate markers out there that allow you to measure the Bronco versus the Jeep. 
Like they care about it because they know you're writing the check. Healthcare didn't work that way. And this is one of the beauties, you know, to make any really successful company take some luck. Like there's gotta be some luck in there. And that's one of the hardest things is you do everything you can to the best of your ability. Then you gotta have a little luck. We had some luck launching this in Singapore because the regulatory environments in Singapore and Malaysia and Hong Kong and Thailand and Indonesia, they all have robust regulations, but because they're smaller countries, the special interest isn't the same as in the US. And that's given us the ability to gain adoption and get the genie out of the bottle with some of the global insurers. And once they see this, they'll be the ones to bring us to the US. I'm not gonna to go to the US and launch an office in Palo Alto and say, hey, here I am. You know, I'll be going in with a giant pair that has leverage in the industry that allows us to bring patient empowerment because the future of insurance has to be about creating these closed data loops and it has to be about steering medical intent on data. I mean, this is so obvious if you think about it. In, in any other industry, this would be just, but because there's all these hurdles in healthcare, there aren't groups that have put it all together. Yeah, and, I, 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 and I'm assuming the reason why the payer chooses to work with you versus any other platform or solution is because you have that robust backend where you can prove the quality of service and price by having this data, database that you've built with working with the right providers. Yeah, I didn't start out wanting to do telemedicine at all. I didn't see a lot of value in it. I, I didn't. The only reason we got into telemedicine is we realized that particularly for things like data security and privacy, and particularly because there's so many conflicting is you have to understand the, the, ins the insurance ecosystem, when the insurance companies, when they're trying to build these digital ecosystems, it, you can't take a bunch of starving startups and all, and any well-run startup is starving, right? So you can't take a bunch of starving startups, put them into an eco, put them and put them together, into different facets of a consumer journey, assume they're all gonna get along, they're all gonna transfer the data stably, and it's all gonna work out. Like that's just never, and then not pay any of them enough to make them secure in that relationship. And that's kind of the way the insurance companies have historically gone about trying to build their ecosystems, particularly in Asia. So we just took a step back and we said, hey, that'll never work. We're getting out of any of those relationships and we're just gonna build all the pieces we need to be effective so that not only do we know the data is secure, not only do we know the patient experience is secure, but we can also show you that there's no conflict of interest and we can show you the cost savings. And so telemedicine is really important because you, that's where 80%, that's basically where 80% of your flow comes in the door in the beginning. That's how they get to know about you. That's how they understand you exist. So you need to give them a delightful experience, even if you never make any money from it. Hmm. And so the telemedicine standalone companies, they're all having to figure out if they can get kickback referrals from specialists in some other way. Right? So you, you got to, the insurers benefit from an integrated system that is all focused on cost reduction and improved quality and delightful experience. Hmm. Right? They're just, they're just coming to grips with that. It takes time. These companies are huge and they move like battleships. And so you got to become a solution provider as opposed to a technical architect for them because they're not, they're only slowly getting to that level of understanding what that means. 
but we've come to the conclusion it has to be an integrated offering um, and it has to be focused on cost. Gotcha. And I'm, I'm curious because this is a, a thing that we've kind of come across and I'd like to get your perspective on this. Uh, and going back to the policyholder, the patient, and, you know, the actions that they choose. And when working with a payer and a payer decides we want to offer or at least give our, our uh, policyholders the ability to use telemedicine because we believe that's important. How much of that is because there is an, a, a real big inbound from their existing policyholders to go use their digital platform versus, you know, go to their local clinic? Um, and how much of it do you think is more of a policy, hold, I'm sorry, payers just wanting to have innovation a part of their company and, and make it as, as if it's a, as a tool versus an actual real important service. And yeah, I'm I don't just think curious it's, in your perspective. Yeah, I don't think it's either. Mm. Um, I think that's lip service. It took me a long time to come to this realization. So for, for the first couple of years we were trying to partner with insurance, they were always talking about experience and how policyholder experience mattered. And, and I, I couldn't figure out the disconnect between everything I would see that all, any net promoter scores that they were even calculating internally, any consulting reports I could get that, that had shown, you know, research that had been done. My, I, we've worked a lot with McKinsey and some of the, the data that we'd gotten from them. And the insurance industry, particularly in Asia, has just had abysmal customer service. Like it's just, and, and the customers will tell you that but they've all had abysmal customer service, so it didn't matter. And so, so the, what's happened now is you're seeing the thing that's driving innovation, the thing that's driving cost savings, the thing that's driving innovation is competitive intensity. You're seeing that Southeast Asia now is the world's most exciting insurance market because it's still a market where you can write risk profitably. It's a market that's largely underpenetrated and it's a market that's large and it's a market that has a fast, uh, a rapidly growing middle class, and it's young. It's a great market to be riding risk. And so a lot of insurers are, are coming into the market and they're competing. And that competition is driving the need for innovation, the need for a better customer experience, the need for a price advantage in the market. So that's what's driving it. It's competitive intensity. And it was only when I saw it through that lens that it made sense. I originally thought a few years ago that Doc Doc, so, and this is a, another big idea that I find is lost on uh, lost often, is taking an analog process and moving it www dot analog process doesn't really bring you much. And a lot of the first iteration of insurance was exactly insurance innovation was exactly that. It's well, we're just going to build a website. We're going to allow you to submit your claims online. But what you're submitting used to be a fax. Now it's a PDF. All that data is dead. That's an analog process in, a, in a, what I call www.analog. What, what, what the, the value of digital is when you take your entire workflow and you measure every step in a machine readable way. So every time the customer touches you, you're learning from it. And you're, you're learning. And so the machine itself is learning. And that's kind of the next step that I think is starting to happen in insurance. And it's going to be a big round of innovation. And the ones that get it right are going to do really well. And the ones that get it wrong are going to be just, they're not going to be competitive in the market. Insurance will drive the uh, bending of the medical cost curve. These two are highly correlated. 
Hmm. Interesting. And I, I feel like that's the, the, the uh, especially the, the general sentiment among payers is being able to have a lot more functionality, much more improved service, but also a much better understanding about how their the actual policyholders are interacting with their ecosystem it's, that they're paying for. <laughs> it's not a trade-off. Yeah. So this is that thing I, I'm, I, I apologize in this video. I think I've rambled quite a bit here. I'm glad we're it's, gonna a, it's great. But um, Amazon has better service. Amazon, great customer service, great logistics, uh, more choice, cheaper price. How are they able to do all of it? So in an analog world, you're either higher quality or lower price. In a digital world, you either built it right, and that allows you to optimize every step of the journey to get better, or you haven't. So this is why the analog, this is why tech, Fang has gotten so big. Because high quality digital processes, they collect more data, they do more with that data, they get better because of the data. Right, and it's not just, there's a difference between having a warehouse full of PDFs and having a learning system. And so what we have to do with insurance tech and what we have to do is we need to help the insurance world become a learning architecture because all insurance really is, is data. It's optimizing the consumer behavior for the consumer's well-being and the uh, 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 efficiently adjusted. That's all they should be doing. But that's a big transition for them. There, I can't emphasize to you the massive amount of organizational inertia you face in trying to change insurance. And, and um, earlier you mentioned, you, you just mentioned the term net promoter score, but the one thing that I uh, couldn't help to notice, but uh, what you guys also promote is that you have a really high net promoter score. I mean, how do you, what do you attribute to this? Is this the, the proof in the service? Is this uh, a showcase of it? Like, Hey, this is, Policyholders actually it's, enjoy it's, the process. It's like that old joke about the two campers and the bear starts chasing and the one guy starts lace, lacing up his shoes and the guy's like, what do you, what, you can't outrun the bear. And he's like, I don't have to, I just have to outrun you. You know, it's, yeah. it's just like that. So yeah. we're pretty good. We're not amazing, we're pretty good. So A, the company is really committed to delivering a high quality customer experience because of why we started this in the first place. So we're pretty good, but the industry is abysmal. And the juxtaposition of pretty good and abysmal is a great net promoter score because the consumer's expectations are so low. Mm. You know, when I use Apple, I expect it to be pretty amazing because they've trained me to expect that. So I guarantee you Apple's MPS is a much more discerning buyer than the Indonesian healthcare consumer. Right. Yeah, I'm just, I'm being sense. real about it, right? Like, yeah. you know, why not at least be real about what we're building and why we're building it and why it is what it is. Exactly. I think our net promoter score will always be high mm -hmm. um, because we're so far ahead of the industry, but we have so far to go. Mm. Well, and in, in knowing your, your, your approach to the industry, I'm curious as a, as a healthcare software company, it seems like it's really difficult uh, to sell to whether it's providers in this case for you, it's payers 
It's really long sales cycles. All of it. And on top of that, you've spent a lot of time doing the brute force of collecting data to get to the point where you can actually yeah. uh, put yourself in front of a lot of these payers. How are you managed that relationship with payers and these long sales cycles? I have yet to hear anyone say the secret no, sauce. And no, no, sauce. it's, it's um, I keep coming back to the same thing. So uh, uh, Buddha says the universe is perfect. It's our perception that's flawed. And the idea behind that is, is that it's all there and it's all been said to you before. You just weren't ready to hear it or see it. And, and, and what, how was that relevant to what you're saying? Fair. Okay. So um, I, have said in this conversation five times that you better have one hell of a large why. And you better, you really, really had better inculcate that into your company's culture. Because if you don't, they'll quit. The dealing with, I'm talking about my own customers and I'm telling you, they're really hard to deal with. Really hard. I mean, you can be, the starting position is always do it all for free and then uh, do it all for free and do it yesterday and do it perfectly. And that's their starting point in any negotiation. And oh, by the way, we'll call you back every, other two, every two months. We'll return an email to you. It's nightmarish. You better have a mission. It, you, you have to have a mission and you, you, you have to look at it like a mission and you have to build a culture that is like a mission. And then when you get in with one of these groups, you have to really execute with an incredible amount of ferocity. And then you got to really establish unimpeachable data and uh, around why this is so valuable. And then once you've done that, the, the, the real senior execs start paying a lot of attention. They start saying, wow, that would, make a, that would really make a difference to my bonus. That would really make an impact if you can do that. And you say, well, no, I can do it. And then you have the, the mid-layer will often fight with you because they get worried about job security. Even if you're not challenging their jobs, they're just, how can they do it when we couldn't do it? Um, and there's a whole rodeo there. And it is difficult. And we're in the early innings still. You know, as an entrepreneur, you got to spend your life's energy somewhere. I'm choosing to spend it tackling a giant problem with the full force of my intellect to help people. And I believe that's more than the obstacles that we face. But it is nightmarish, no one's cracked it. This isn't B2C e-commerce in Indonesia. You know, this is not go-go days. It's not gonna work that way. You know, people will try to ride on the back of that. They'll generate a lot of traffic. They'll get a lot of buzz. And then they'll just peter out. And there's dozens of, digital health is littered with these examples because it just doesn't work that way. You have to get through the payers and this health systems. And if it's gonna, it's like chewing through a two by four. You just gotta go and just keep going and stick with it. I mean, the last deal we closed was a three and a half year sales cycle. You know, but I think now that we've done that one, there's now six other of their local markets that wanna work with us in, in Asia and outside of Asia. Because we, and I think that's the way it has to go. I, I, I think the proxy for high quality digital health is going to be much closer to drug discovery than it is e-commerce. Mm. 
Well, and, and to kind of piggyback on- Now I've scared all the investors away from ever investing in digital health. <laughs> no, I, it's, uh, it's, that's the, the important part about having this conversation is I think there's a lot of things that people don't quite understand unless they've gone through that process and looking directly at, um, you know, at the outside at the surface level website, a lot of people make assumptions about what business models might work, what's the right structure, but unless you like yourself have lived through that process and understand the intricacies of every single step of the way, it's, it's hard to really fully encapsulate uh, healthcare. And actually the, bigger reason why we do these events is because of the fact that for most investors, and I think it's not just investors, it's all stakeholders in the healthcare ecosystem, healthcare is tough because there's too many options. And this is why if we're doing the event to highlight people like yourself, so we can route people in the right direction. Um, well, you know, and you also look at, look, think about it this way too. Culturally, insurers, they make more money the less, the more they keep, right? They make money by not paying people. That is their competitive advantage. If I can pay less than the other person, then I win. Mm -hmm. So you come in as a vendor, that's their culture, mm. right? So it's a, it, I think it's very different than being a vendor to Google. Right. Or Facebook. Yeah. Well, the other unique aspect about your company was the fact that you are based in Singapore, but you are a global company in the sense that you work in a lot of different markets and Southeast Asia by itself is very complicated. Um, and each region and I'm, I'm assuming each hospital system is very different from one another or at least have their differences. How have you been able to scale as a global, as in become yeah. a global company? So the model actually is remarkably uh, uh, um, geographic independent. So the way you measure healthcare quality in every market doesn't change. We're dealing with Western medicine here. Maybe the way you would do Chinese medicine would be different, but we're not going down that road. So Western medicine, every market, orthopedic surgery, all the 66 subspecialties that we work with, they're all the same. Uh, it does, that doesn't change. The hospital systems, there's really only two models that we found, and that's throughout all of Asia and most of Europe, is they either they're integrated so the hospital actually employs all the doctors and it's kind of like a monolith it's one organization and then you have to go through that then that's like a to sign those doctors up is a couple year process because you have to go to the hospital administrators and get them to agree and their leadership to agree then you still have to go to all the doctors individually because none of the hospital systems have had the data that we've seen um so that that's that block and then the other block which is what most of asia is it's kind of what I call like the value added real estate block where the doctors are free agents with hospital privileges um, at a hospital. Um, and so then you just go clinic to clinic. Um, and it's easy to establish a hospital relationship, but it doesn't buy you much. So most of Asia. So um, from that point of view, it doesn't change. There's obviously all the normal issues that entrepreneurs face in Asia, language, uh, currencies, um, but even most of the insurers, you know, in, there, there's not too many local insurers. They're pretty much all global chains. So you're talking to Allianz in all your markets. You're talking to AXA, you're talking to Prudential or AIG or uh, Aetna or Cigna. You're going to all the markets with them. Um, so, you know, I, I actually think it's quite scalable from that regard. And 
the number of specialists in any given market is small enough. It's big enough to be big and a big bite to make to, to get a critical mass, but it's small enough that you can really um, you can really develop dominant market penetration uh, in a few years' time. And I'm 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 curious. I might backstep a little bit on we talked about the relationships and the business model. Um, what are the deliverables that uh, you pitch to payers? In, in winning over that relationship. I think we talked about it a little bit before, but um, just wanted to highlight that again about. Yeah, so, so um, we empower their agents hmm. with a differentiated product offering. Um, that's the first step. The second step is we reduce cost uh, measurably. And then the third is uh, um, uh, we provide a delightful customer experience. And then we also, that's th those are the direct immediate and then we also give them just vastly better analytics, right? What they do with that, we're still working through. Gotcha. How they learn to use that in underwriting is something that we're having a lot of really interesting conversations about, but gotcha. that's coming. That, I mean, that, that's coming. That'll be in the next couple of years where they'll all be saying, wow, this is a fundamental competitive advantage. And, and to kind of segue into that, with this type of business model and, and for, telemedicine services, what do you think is the market size for something like this? How big do you think um, this truly is? I mean, we've seen telemedicine companies, the telemedicine category overall has raised the most amount of funding yeah. to any other healthcare category. It is huge. It's sizable. But uh, for a company like DocTalk, they impact working directly with payers in the way that you are. What is it like? How do we measure that? So it's about a one point. I think that uh, McKinsey came out last year. I think it was private medical insurance globally was a $1.3 trillion market. And you figure that we're taking a percentage of that in cost savings, somewhere between 80% of the cost savings and 50%, depending on the kind of the, the, the size of the per member per month fee. So, you know, it's, it's big. I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, even very conservatively measuring it. Hmm. Right. The, the companies that, that, that provider analytics and uh, 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 direct to consumer patient adherence pharmaceutical, this is how you're going to bend medical inflation. This is going to be the crux of, of the future of, um, you know, Warren Buffett says, you know, trees, the reason trees don't go to the, the moon is because things can't grow forever. Right. And so, so medical inflation is already radically unsustainable. And in markets like the U.S., it's well past the point. You know, the U.S. spends 19% of its GDP on healthcare. Uh, it's the most expensive healthcare market in the world. Hong Kong is number two and Singapore is number three. And, you know, in Singapore, and I mean, last year, Singapore, this didn't even make headlines. Medical inflation was 22 times uh, adjusted CPI. Wow. Right, and it didn't even make headlines. Last year, Malaysia's medical inflation rate was 14%. They had a, a, an overall adjust, uh, adjusted CPI of like 3%. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, it, you know, this is how you're going to bend that cost curve. And the companies that bring in, I, this is what I love about DocDoc. I love our barrier to entry. Like I love the building that you, first you got to build the knowledge model. Then you got to sign the doctors up. Then you got to develop a great customer experience. Then you have to get into the insurers and actually demonstrate that it all works. 
I'm not worried about somebody else coming along and, and creating price pressure for me. Mm. Like that's not, my whole thing is being the, being, being the evangelist and, and creating the data to demonstrate in an unimpeachable way why this makes so much sense. Mm. And that just took time. It just took us years to do that. Mm. Yeah. Why? I'm, I'm curious then on this idea, and I know my segue for every question is I'm curious or to follow up. So I, I apologize if I sound like a broken. All good. But uh, the pandemic has been yeah. a huge issue. And I'm curious how this has affected your company. It's helped a bunch. I mean, I'm sorry to say that, but it's helped a lot. And the reason it has is it's overcome, it's really helped to overcome organizational inertia. So uh, one of the biggest things that the pandemic did for insurance is the insurers that didn't have a virtualized experience were really in trouble that were up and running. So if all of a sudden their agents had to go back to a headquarter or back to an office to input a policy, they couldn't do it remotely. Well, they were just shut down. They couldn't even sell policies. And if the claims process and their third party administrator wasn't able to be done on a, a, a at-home basis, they couldn't process claims either. So all of a sudden, they had to become virtual. And that was an absolute burning bridge. Once they've made that step to becoming virtual, then all of a sudden, these, they're starting to say, okay, well, how are we, we've been talking about what we wanna to do to interact with our policyholders, and now we've kind of got these other pieces in place that make a little more sense. Uh, we had to do that and thank God we did that. Now, how do we think about doing this in a more intelligent way? How do we, and, and that, I, I just find that in a nutshell, COVID has really helped us overcome organizational inertia um, on the insurer side, on the payer side. And that's the employee, bro that's, that's the brokers as well. And it's really helped us overcome organizational inertia um, on the uh, 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 hospital side. So we didn't really have that problem, but now we have doctors, we never had doctors reaching out to us. And now we have doctors reaching out to us in droves saying, hey, we want to be part of DocDoc. Mm -hmm. There's always a silver lining and sometimes in these situations. And um, this is the biggest shift that we're seeing is the digitization of everything, especially healthcare in this situation. But um, well, it was so far behind. Mm -hmm. Like I just, I can't emphasize to you how far behind it was. What I would, uh, what I, I don't want to talk down telemedicine too much here. What I would highlight to the group that I think is very important is telemedicine is going to be a very interesting entry point. And COVID now has kind of brought that to bear. So there are a lot of consumers now that are thinking telemedicine. There's insurers thinking telemedicine. And there's your entry point. Teledoc, what they did with Livongo was brilliant. And they're going to do some other really brilliant things. But really, in essence, they've got to backfill the value chain um, to justify kind of the giant public market sediment that they've, that they've been given. They've got to backfill the value chain to get to where the medical spend is and optimize there. Because that's ultimately where they're going to capture their existence. Hmm. And I, I think we're going to see telemedicine utilization fall directly proportional to the lockdowns coming up. Mm. It is important, it's just not this important. Yeah, and you might have answered my next question. So I, I'm curious from 
where do you think the future of telemedicine is going and what do you see that other people don't? Um, I never realized how long this would take. And uh, years ago, I just had to make a decision. Like I made the decision when I'm sitting in the ICU and I left my current job that this was going to be a life's work. But I've re-doubled down on that a few times. Um, and I think that because I look at it as a life's work, um, that I'm, you know, that, that, you know, I mean, it's myself, literally the company is myself, my wife, my best friend from MIT, who's one of the world leaders in clinical informatics. And one of my best friends in high school that had started, I think this is on his 10th company. So we're tight and, and, and it's a life's work. And I think that when you approach things that way, it allows you to get above the noise real fast. You know, you start looking at things in a five-year horizon. Over the next five years, what are we going to do to optimize this? Yeah, there's always short-term issues. I mean, you've got funding issues and everything else, but we're not thinking about it that way. We're thinking very long-term. And I think you have to, in healthcare, think very long-term. And you have to build great relationships with payers. And then you just really need to deliver so they can feel comfortable allowing you to make money. Yeah, I think that's what it comes down to. Wow. Well, I think uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful note to end on. And I think uh, uh, before I make my closing remarks, is there anything that uh, uh, you would like to mention or say or have any requests um, before we close out this interview? No, I, I'm thankful, Guy. Thank you. This was way cooler than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Good. No, it was really cool. I, I'm very impressed with how much time you've spent and the questions you've asked and the thoughtfulness of it. And um, we should engage. Absolutely. We're going to raise another round and we should really engage because I'm, I'm very impressed with the work that you've done. I, I mean that legitimately. Like nobody ever gets any of this. Like I, I, the hardest thing that we faced in Doc Doc is simplifying the message mm -hmm. to get people to really understand what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you came to us and said, Hey, we got, we, I, I get it. It's hugely flattering because nobody else does. <laughs> awesome. I'm going to leave that in this video. Um, well, thank you so much. I, I, I really appreciate you took extra time to no and cancel meetings, but Cole, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, and again, just to, to recap, you know, we, we, we did our research, we looked at 500 telemedicine companies. We did this interview on purpose because doc doc was one of the top companies that we saw within this category. Now you all have the ability to understand why we made that rationale and not just from our side, but from Cole, the CEO himself. And so again, Cole, thank you so much for sharing your story, your backstory and the product details and what makes you unique. We really appreciate it. Peace.